located at 3850 Doris Murphy Court in Harmony Village, Occidental. www.occidentalcenterforthearts.org 707-874-9392 And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. To the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. This is Dina Serrano for KPFA, celebrating International Women's Month 2016. And today I'm going to be interviewing Chris Welsh. She is our honoree for this International Women's Month because, one, she's a favorite, two, She's been here a long time and has quite a story to tell. So, Chris, how did you get involved in radio? Well, actually, I looked in the yellow pages. I, I had decided that communication was, A, what I was best at, and B, what I truly believed would create peace in the world. If we just talked to each other, if we just communicated better. And I had always been very good at being able to talk to lots of different people. And so I looked in the yellow pages when I came to Berkeley for all of the radio stations, television stations, and newspapers. And I went around to as many as I could get to. I had no money, so I was walking a lot of places, wearing my mother's skunk fur coat, which was very, very large from the 40s, square, black fur, looks sort of like a gorilla suit, and a dress that I had made, which was purple with red bunny rabbits. And I had purple tights and red shoes. And I had just been living in Rome recently. So I had, and you always dress and you always wear makeup. And so I had purple and red eyeshadow on. And I had set my hair so it looked fabulous, very sort of like Rhonda Fleming. And I came up the stairs to KPFA having no idea. It was just in the listing in the yellow pages. And the woman, we had a receptionist, and she sort of looked at me and, may I help you? And I said, well, I, uh, to whom would I speak to about a job? And she's looked at me and she said, you mean for money? And I just was <laughs> flabbergasted. I said, I thought I said job. Yes, I mean money. And she took pity on me and she said, well, what are you interested in? And I said, women's, women's liberation and the news. So she said, well, there was a meeting, a women's meeting uh, another day, and I could come to that. So I showed up in my mother's skunk fur coat, and, and here are all these women who had just liberated themselves at KPFA. What year was this? This was 1972. They had just liberated themselves from the previous roles of women at KPFA, which had been as secretaries to the men who were on the air. And they had had it. That was it. They quit. And they were now doing on-air stuff. And they were forming collectives. And so I walk in, and they're all wearing army fatigues and no makeup, of course. And I am definitely look sort of strange. 
And <laughs> but it was really exciting. And there was another meeting, and I came to that. And they were also teaching you how to run the machinery. So I took that class. And I mean, I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything else to do. I was waitressing. I got a job waitressing on the university. And it was the Women's News Collective. We founded it, and we started it. Tish Summers was our first mentor, lighting the fire under all of us. Incredible activist, older woman. It was one of the 100 most something impactful people in San Francisco at one point from the Chronicle. Really wonderful, wonderful woman. And we had a great time. So that was how. So how did you get to Rome? Where did you begin to get to Rome? Oh, a little town in Illinois. And I had a mad crush. Everybody in town was uh, Swedish. We had a Swedish days. I'm half Swedish. Lots and lots of white people. Well, not lots. The town was 7,000 people. So it's not very many people. One black family, two Jewish families, one Italian family. I had a big crush on the boy and the Italian family. Brown eyes were very attractive because they were so few and far between. And for some reason, I I always wanted to... Maybe it was watching Marcello Mastroianni in a movie. I don't know. But I'd always wanted to go to Italy. And... I was working in Chicago, writing the Montgomery Ward catalog, and Martin Luther King was assassinated. And there were lots of anti-war activity going on then as well, 1968. And we were given the afternoon off to worship at the church of our choice. And I disappeared for three days. There were lots and lots of marches going on. And when I came back, my supervisor says, well, I am very sorry, but you don't work here anymore. And I was very sorry because I really liked my supervisor. And it was the first real job I'd had besides waitressing. So... I took my last paycheck and had been talking about going to Europe. No one in my family had ever gone to Europe. And I bought a, a round-trip ticket on Icelandic and had $200 cash. And after going to a wedding in Atlanta and visiting Martin Luther King's gravesite, took off and first went to Berlin because I had a college roommate who was German and she was going to the Fry Universität and so I went and stayed with her and I was there when she came running in the door was taking a nap she said Chris Chris Kennedy has been shot Kennedy has been shot and I thought man it's taken a long time for the news to reach Germany and she said no 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 the other one the other one and it was Robert F. Kennedy all the students were gathering around this huge TV, which all was in German, of course. They were showing uh, Walter Cronkite, who would, well, it's Lawrence this afternoon, and then all of a sudden it would go to German. So, although it helped improve my German, but <laughs> it was still frustrating. And slowly, slow, well, I was going to Italy. That's what I was going to do. But from there, since it was close to Sweden, I wanted to see where my people had come from. I went there. And I was still sort of on my way. I went, got down to Munich, and I had a backpack, my brother's Boy Scout backpack. That was my traveling. And by this time, I had a Eurail pass that an aunt had given me. So I was getting on the train at night and going to wherever it would stop in the morning because I couldn't afford to pay any place to sleep. I barely had enough money for food, but I still had this Eurail pass. So I was going to go to Vienna from Munich and I, I was going to go to a free organ concert first so I hid my backpack under the stairs because it cost 50 pfennigs to put it in a locker and so I hid it and I came back from the concert and my backpack was gone 
And I was wearing another dress that I had made. <laughs> this one was gold and purple and green, wide stripes, green shoes. And I didn't have a toothbrush. I didn't have anything. It was all gone. So I went uh, back to this Machenheim, and there were a bunch of other young women there who spoke English from New Zealand and England who had found jobs because Munich was preparing to be the site for the Olympics, very famously where there were the, the shootings, the Palestinian uprising. And they were working in this hotel, and so I went to get a job in this hotel, so I did, being at Simmermage. Did you have your passport in your purse? So you Yes, I had my passport, and I had my Eurail pass. So I started working in this hotel and met a young man at a Christmas party. He was British, and we had made a date for New Year's, and in between Christmas and New Year's, he left because he had taken a, an offer of a job to drive a black market Mercedes. There were a bunch of folks at the train station, and he was going down there to try to get a ride to back to England, and instead, somebody came up to him and offered him a free ride to Tehran, <laughs> and he would get paid to if if they could put this black market Mercedes on his passport. So he went, and we exchanged letters. And by this time, I was working in a childcare situation. Anyway, so exchanging letters, and finally got to where, okay, I wanted to go to see him, or I'd lost my job, or something, uh, or both, <laughs> which is more like it. So I went down to the same used car lot that he had gone to and said that I was available. And in fact, I could drive, which he could not. I was able to drive a black market Mercedes for them. And they said, okay, how about we're, we're leaving in a couple of hours. So I packed up my little stuff, went down to the used car lot and got in this black market Mercedes. And there were two Mercedes, so I went with Saeed, who drove one and I drove the other one. And it was three weeks of incredible adventure, which nearly ended up with us getting arrested. But that's another story in Turkey. Finally ended up in Tehran and still not in Rome. I'm still trying to get to Italy. But was in Tehran for a year. Uh, Said was married to a Romanian woman, Bulgaria. That's what she was, Bulgarian. And we stayed with her, and she was very, very happy to see him. And she had, she knew that we were on our way to Turkey because he wanted to deliver the cars to Syria, because that's where you could make the most money. And the U.S. didn't have relations with Syria at the time. And so I was going to have to stop at the Turkish border. And he didn't want it on his passport. It had to be on my passport. So we ended up at this little border town in Turkey. And he pretended he didn't speak anything, which he spoke five or six different languages. And so the guy had to deal with me, but he was highly suspicious. And so he brought in the village English teacher to communicate and Everything was revealed that, in fact, this is phony and false, and Saeed was disgusted. Now it was going to cost him an arm and a leg to get this car. And but at any rate, the school teacher invited us back to his house to stay, and he brought out a picture of himself and Robert Kennedy, because Robert Kennedy had visited this village about the Peace Corps. So first we go to this border and Saeed tells me, do not get out of the car. Don't let them see you. And he goes in this room and he has been bribing border officials as we've gone along with Nivea cream and with uh, dresses in various sizes and cartons of Kent cigarettes and things that he was prepared. This is what he does for a living. 
And so he gets here, and I'm supposed to hide. And he comes storming out and comes over to me. He's furious, and he says, you let them see you. And I was like, what? And he said, get out of the car. And so I get out of the car, and here are all of these soldiers. And he said, they say that I can go through with the cars, but I have to leave you here with them. I mean, no one that loved me knew where I was. No, could never have found me. It would be months, months. He said, and then they could send you through to the other side, and then they could play with you for a while, and then they'll send you back. And he said, that's right, cry. Let them see you cry. And he was just furious. So then he told me to get back in the car. He wasn't going to let that happen to me, but I didn't for sure know that. I wasn't sure what was going to go on. So I get in my car, and he's in his car, and he takes off, and we're driving 120 miles an hour, literally, over these roads. He's just furious until we get to the town where the English teacher was. And then that's then we're at another border, and we're paraded around the village, and, and the English teacher is very proudly showing off yet more Americans that he's acquainted with. And Saeed is hissing at me, you're loving this, aren't you? You're such a hippie. And <laughs> anyway, so he puts me on the bus and tells me not to talk to me, not to, not to get out. And he finds me a seat. There's a little boy and his father, and he asks the father to move to the seat behind so that I can sit next to the little boy so that I will be safe. And then I go back to his brother's house in Ankara, very uneventfully and he puts me on a bus to Tehran because that is where I'm supposedly going. So I get on the bus to Tehran and it goes to Erzurum, which is fine, that's where you're supposed to go. And you get on the train to go to Erzurum. So the train, you're in the third class compartment and uh, it's packed with people and there is a, a man and his wife and a child and a huge bundle about half the size of this room of all of their belongings tied up in a blanket or a sheet or something and it's jam-packed in there and i'm up against the window which turns out to be where the heater is and the bathroom the husband of this couple uh, offers to take me down the hall to the bathroom because you wouldn't leave the train compartment by yourself as a female you go down uh, the hall to the bathroom it's just a hole in the floor of the train Anyway, so the, then you finally get to Erzurum on the train, and then you transfer to a bus. And the bus is going over the mountains, and we get stalled. There's somebody that's stalled way up in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of these mountains between Turkey and, and Iran. And snow, nothing but snow. A semi has jackknifed. So nobody's going anywhere for quite some time. Anyway, so then we get to Tehran, and it's very late at night, and I find the address of the hotel where my British friend, not quite yet a boyfriend, I'd only known him for 24 hours. <laughs> you traveled across the world to find him, and you only had known him 24 well, hours. Well, it was more the, what else did I have to do? So <laughs> I was 20-something, you know, what the heck. Anyway, and he's asleep, and not only that, stoned. He's sort of blurry-eyed. But anyhow, I got a job working for one of the English-language newspapers in Tehran. Loved the job. Lost the job uh, because I put a, a story in which offended Saudi Arabia. And so the secret police, Savak, in Iran, came and took the editor-in-chief and the publisher to prison 
And then when I came to work, I was fired. Then I couldn't get a job. I taught English for a while, but when I went to the labor department, they said, oh, no, not you. You're on a list. So I had to leave. I couldn't stay there and not work. So I got on a train. Finally, I'm on my way to Rome. <laughs> Wow. Get on a train and go up through Russia, which was fascinating, and down to Germany, where by now my sister is married and she's pregnant with my first, turned out to be a nephew. But anyway, I stayed there for about a month and then finally got to Rome. And so that's how I got to Rome. And when I got to Rome, I went to the newspaper, the Rome Daily American, and applied for a job. And they put me in the proofreading department. That was way fun. It was hot lead instead of thing digital or anything. The Italians are actually setting the type, just as they were doing at the Tehran Journal in Iran. And so you get to really know the the guys that work there, especially in Tehran. It was a t completely different language and different letters and different everything and showing them how to capitalize something or where to put in the comma and all that stuff. So that was really fun. And then I was moved to the editorial department, had lots of really wonderful friends in Rome. I loved Rome. I was there for a year and a half. I just loved it. And then I decided the same boyfriend, the British guy, was now back in England and that we should see if this was something real because we'd been communicating. He'd visited me in Rome, blah, blah, blah. So I decided to go see him in Bristol. And a friend of mine threw the I Ching and he says, I see a darkening of the light. <laughs> Which, in, in fact, was true, if only for the weather, because Rome, it's like sunny 300 days of the year. And then you go to England, <laughs> which it was July and cold and dark. Uh, and I got pregnant probably within 15 minutes of landing on British soil. And it took several months to arrange, very difficult to arrange an abortion and the doctor was fighting it and wouldn't allow me to even consider having an abortion until he had spoken with my partner, who explained to him that he came from a family where there were every other generation children born deaf and dumb, and that he was not planning to have any children. And then the guy allowed me to have an abortion, and that was a very interesting experience. So you go to a hospital somewhere, and anyway, you go in this room. It's like a huge uh, gymnasium with, with uh, dividers that are about as tall as you are, but not much more. So you can hear everything and everyone. And you're sitting in one of those things with no back or anything, the the shirts that they put on in the hospital. and And the doctor came in and started yelling at me because I was taking a bed uh, with my foolishness that someone who was really sick could have had. I had a room all to myself, and I was somewhat famous. I was reading Germaine Greer's Female Eunuch at the time, and I didn't shave my legs and all that stuff. And they kept bringing in troops of doctors and nurses to see me, and I didn't pay it any mind. I was perfectly happy because I was getting what I needed and wanted, which was this abortion. And the job that I had had, I, the people who worked there said that they programmed a little music program for the hospital uh, patients. And t what song would I like to hear? And I said, I wanted to hear the Beatles singing, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. So they, they shave you, and the nurse came in, got me all soaked up, and shaved me, and then walked off and left me all soaked up. And, you know, in retrospect, I didn't think about it at the time, but these people were furious with me absolutely furious 
that I was exercising my right to have an abortion. And I didn't even notice it, didn't let it just... I was doing it, it was happening. It was a major operation. They knocked you out, and you went into surgery, the whole thing. It's like very elaborate. And when I came out, they turned on the radio for me, and here are my co-workers saying, well, we couldn't find that song, so we're playing this one. Bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer came down on her head. It does happen to be on the same album. Oh, well, details, details. Anyway, shortly after that, I heard that my grandfather was dying in Van Nuys, California. So I decided I had to go back, come back to the States for that. So I was gone a total of four years and came back to the States, fully intending to go right back to England or my boyfriend, whatever. But. Oh, well, my grandfather did, in fact, die, and I stayed with my grandmother in Southern California for a couple of months, and then I'd always wanted to live in San Francisco. I was going to stay here and make some money and then go back to Europe, and I didn't know anything about San Francisco, but I had a friend from grade school when I could stay with her, so I got on the Greyhound and came up to Berkeley, actually getting off in Oakland, then started applying for work. At radio stations, television stations, and newspapers. And that's how you got to KPFA. Exactly. Thank you so much, Chris Welsh, for joining us for International Women's Month. Our theme today has been gender equality from commitment to results. And your story illustrates that so beautifully. And we thank you, Chris Welch. <laughs> Condo. I can't express it in an artisan sausage grill. I can't convey it over vintage shade-grown coffee. Prepared by baristas trained with special skill. But if you meet me at the taco stand, después del cumbiazo, yo si te lo puedo explicar. Yes, to properly articulate my love for you, especial. I love you more than tacos. I love you more than tacos. I love you more than quesadillas, burritos, y nachos. I love you more than tacos. I love you more than tacos. Es de amor profundo, si es de Que llevaba aguacate y crema tú Y tú me decías que tenías hambre I would give that super burrito to you Yeah, because my love for you is deeper than an ocean Un mar de agua fresca de melón Y si declaro que te adoro más que tacos Si te quiero I love you more than tacos, I love you more than tacos, I love you more than quesadillas, burritos y nachos, I love you more than tacos, 
has been Nina Smyrno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. KPFA listeners, KPFA's mini summer fundraiser starts Wednesday, July 27th. During this time, we invite anyone to come down to our phone room and volunteer their time answering calls and taking pledges. No experience is necessary. During the week, our phone room will be open at 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. on weekends. Snacks, coffee, and tea will be provided. Please visit www.kpfa.org for more information about volunteering at KPFA. Become a member of KPFA for just a pledge of $25. As a member of Northern California's only independent media outlet, it entitles you to participate in our elections for local station board. As a member, you are supporting commercial-free programming that challenges the status quo, producing gutsy, smart news, music, and public affairs. 